Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman, and this is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Hello, Baltimoreans. How's it going? Baltimore. I hope that uh, y'all have had a fantastic week and that you're not too underslept from this whole West Coast shenanigans. But let's be honest, that's a totally unrealistic hope. Because wow. we've all been staying up late this week. The uh, I found that the 2 p.m. hour at work, uh, especially after I've had some Chipotle, gets real struggle. <laughs> real hard to keep the old eyes open. Have had a couple of turn the lights off, crawl under the desk, catch, catch 15 minutes shut-eye there. <laughs> just kind of gets you through the day. I'm just imagining uh, your coworkers huddling in a corner saying, I think, uh, I think Alan may have a problem. <laughs> and then somebody's like, do you think it's alcohol? And then someone else is like, no, it, it's baseball. <laughs> it's a serious baseball problem. The funny part is my, I have a door that closes in my office, but it's a glass door. <laughs> so it doesn't do all that much. Hey, what do we say, Smith? What do we always say? Better a glass door than a glass ceiling. We do, we do always say that. What? I was just saying that the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Baltimoreans, the show that, like Masson broadcaster Gary Thorne, enjoys innovative desserts. You go right into the best restaurant on the moon. If you look bottom right, that big open space, oh. that's what they serve there. <laughs> That's, it's called a moon Sunday. It's available only in that bottom right corner of the moon. Man, Gary was really on that ice cream kick, wasn't he? You know, I have noticed something about Gary Thorne that has taken him down a couple ticks in my esteem. Oh, no. And it's that a lot of his more uh, innovative statements are not just the result of his own mind running amok, but rather the result of the camera people focusing on various objects. <laughs> And that making him feel like he has to fill the space. Well, there is a certain genius in the ability to free associate. I mean, that's basically what we run our podcast on. <laughs> that's right. Baltimoreans. Our tagline, the genius of free association. We've got a fantastic show on tap for you tonight, folks. In just a few minutes, we'll do the thing you've always feared we'd end up doing, <laughs> which is to share some original Orioles poetry. Trust us. We are just as disturbed by this turn of events as you are. <laughs> if not more so. Of course, no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Aaron Ledesma Franchise Report. You know, folks, Alan and I have joined many of you in bemoaning the apparent idiocy of rostering the David Lowe's, Preston Gilmets, and Ryan Flaherty's of the world. How? We so often ask ourselves, the backs of our hands pressed to our moist foreheads as we dejectedly sip our mint juleps, how can we hope to be a contending team with such cruft lurking at the corners of our lineup, threatening, it seems, at every moment to reveal the newly relevant Orioles to be the hapless degenerates to whom we grew so accustomed from 1998 to 2011? At moments like this, dear listeners, it is important to remember the Aaron Ledesmas of the world. If I was to ask you, Alan Smith, for which Orioles team Aaron Ledesma appeared in 43 games, could you tell me? I could not. Perhaps I should help you out by giving you the names of some other of Ledesma's teammates from the season in question. Lenny Webster, David DeLucci, Tim Laker, Jerome Walton, Pete Incavilia, Sean Bosky, and Rick Krivda. That is, without question, the most depressing list of baseball players I've ever heard in my life. Isn't it? 
Surely Ledesma and this rogues gallery of gloom pirates <laughs> comprised the roster of one of the wretched late 90s, early 2000 Orioles teams we've tried so hard to forget, right? Got to be. Wrong! In fact, each of these men logged meaningful innings as members of the wire-to-wire AL East champion 1997 Baltimore Orioles. No. Which, I think we can all agree, was the last unquestionably great Oriole team. And part of what makes baseball great is that you can't win a pennant, let alone a division, without some key contributions from the Aaron Ledesmas, Nerio Rodriguez's, and Melvin Rosario's of the world. The sad thing <laughs> is a that category now. <laughs> <laughs> the sad thing is that most of us would not, I think, remember these gentlemen when we fondly recall the '97 O's. We think of Palmero and Alomar and Messina and Ripken and Hoyles and Brady and B.J. Surhoff and Jimmy Key and Scott Erickson and Randy Myers and then maybe Harold Baines and sure. Eric Davis, I guess. Some of the more sentimental among us might pull an Arthur Rhodes. But those, for the most part, would be the guys who get to proudly strut back and forth across our memories when we think about the 1997 season. We don't remember the later innings of the 13-5 loss to the Yankees on September 12th of that year when Ledesma came in at third base to give Ripken a couple innings rest. Or Danny Clyburn eating some innings in left field a few weeks later during an 11-3 drubbing at the hands, or paws, I suppose, of the Tigers. But these guys are no less a part of the Orioles' glory as they are their failures. And we don't have to like Nick Hundley, but we do have to find a way to love him. <laughs> Speaking of romance, if you haven't yet fallen in love with our Sister Wife podcast here on the Baltimore <laughs> Sports Report Network, you're really depriving yourselves of a steady stream of oral pleasure. And I do mean stream, <laughs> because you can stream all of the shows on the network at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network or on iTunes, where the truly sexy among you have made the alluring decision to leave us a review. But some of you haven't, and I get that. Maybe mm. you're on the fence Perhaps you find our charms enticing, but aren't quite ready to put a subscription ring on it. That's okay, because I'm confident you will be after the following comments from my esteemed co-host, Alan Smith, who is here as always to tell us about the meaning of episode 102. Right you are, sir, because episode 102 is a time to reflect on the near certain fact that 102 is what University of Pennsylvania professor Howard E. Winklevoss must have said in the delivery room. One! Oh, two? Two indeed, Dad. As Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss would go on to attend the august Greenwich Country Day School, which boasted such notable alums as George W. Bush, Vince McMahon's daughter, Stephanie, ESPN's own Bill Simmons. Side note, Grantland, give us a job. Please, give us a job. There, the Winklevosses, or is it Winklevi, showed a fondness for the classics, studying Latin and ancient Greek. During their junior year, they also co-founded the crew program, and then, on matriculating to Harvard, invented a social network that would, if you hear the Winklevoss boys tell it, go on to be ripped off by Facebook. Eventually, they would also row in the Olympics and invest enough in Bitcoin that they could book two seats on the planned Richard Bronson flight to space, but not before they got the Hollywood treatment, as both twins were played by Army Hammer in the three-time Academy Award-winning film The Social Network. For those of you who haven't seen it, the film follows the career of Mark Zuckerberg, 
the young man who founded Facebook and made himself a billionaire before he turned 25. What's that you say? A movie glorifying nerds who otherwise would never be seen in a romantic light? Why that sounds like the next year's Dark Horse Academy Award darling, Moneyball, which of course follows the career of a young Billy Bean trying to compete in a league where money and the RBI are sacred. Like The Social Network, Moneyball was nominated for multiple Academy Awards. However, more like the Oakland Athletics team portrayed in that film, it won none of the important things when they mattered, finishing with zero Academy Awards and zero meaningful playoff victories. You know, as the A's established themselves this year, as not only the scariest team in the American League, but also as a real Orioles bugaboo, I think we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. Namely, what the hell is their mascot exactly? Isn't calling yourself the Athletics basically the same thing as saying you're an athlete? In which case, isn't that what every team is made up of as well? And how are you special then? Also, what's this nonsense with the elephant? Why is he an A? Shouldn't he be an E? I think really that the team should just consider pulling a prince and turning themselves into a symbol. And the A's fans, well, you'd think that supporting a team with such high apparent baseball IQ, they'd be a little sharper on the draw, wouldn't you? Not these knuckle-dragging trogulites. The A's fans that we see on Twitter or cheering their heads off at games are a totally different breed from us Orioles fans. For example, they hate on Manny Machado without, like, a really good reason, besides that bat-chucking kerfuffle. They keep calling him A-Rod, which, I mean, come on, where'd they even come up with that comparison? That's ridiculous. And they don't even acknowledge that Manny's clearly has some redeeming qualities. And their city? Gross. Post-industrial port city with only 450,000 people? Who can really claim to root for one of them? And really, Oakland's just too close to a larger, more historic, more well-known, and more glamorous place. Poor guys. Living in San Francisco's shadow. No wonder they're such dicks. They must have a real chip on their shoulder. Really, though, I think it's just that there are too many poor, blue-collar, working-class fans. Too much crime. Not like Baltimore. No, sir. I, for one, am sure glad that I'm an Orioles fan and not following some disgusting organization like the Athletics. I'll bet we share, like, less than 75% of our DNA with those people. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Aaron Ledesma Franchise Report, where each week we run down the three most important topics in Birdland and rank them from strikeout to home run. Item number one on this week's Franchise Report concerns the increasingly blustery trade wins. The Orioles are known to be on the hunt for some pitching upgrades, particularly to the starting rotation, and some of the names most commonly bandied about have been Ian Kennedy, A.J. Burnett, and Jorge de la Rosa. Sam, what do you make of this latest round of rumors? I'm going to give this a Kevin Gosman complete game, which is awarded only because he pitched it in a rain-shortened contest. That's your first baseball ranking in weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I feel very uncomfortable right now. I'm out of my element. Uh, the reason I say it's a fake complete game okay. is because a complete game 
is that happens when when a player really steps up, mm-hmm. really puts it all on the line. Yeah. And to me, uh, trading for Ian Kennedy, trading for AJ Burnett, trading for Jorge De La Rosa is a lot like signing a gentleman named Ubaldo Jimenez. Yes. And the thing I find most frustrating about these rumors is that the Jimenez signing was supposed to make this kind of trade unnecessary this right. season. It was supposed to make it so that finally we did not have to worry about the top of the pitching rotation being the one thing standing between us and the playoffs. And yet here we are again. And I think if there is a lesson that I would really like the front office to take from that, it's that another Ibaldo Jimenez, another um, Scott Feldman, another... Uh, Bud Norris has worked out very well for us, but I think he's pitching better than any of us would have expected, um, at least this season. And working in some fantastic crotch grabs. Yes, that one of one of the finest gifs to come out of Birdland this year. <laughs> um, another one of those guys, another Ian Kennedy, A.J. Burnett, Jorge De La Rosa is not necessarily going to be the difference maker that we need. And I don't really envision that we're going to be able to get enough more value out of an Ian Kennedy than we would out of a Miguel Gonzalez to justify trading Miguel Gonzalez for Ian Kennedy, which we apparently tried to do with the Padres, according to some reports that came out today. Um, I would much rather go with the rotation that we have and put Jimenez back in, see if he can recapture his abilities from last year and put Gonzo in the bullpen, then I would trade him for Ian Kennedy, who has sometimes been great and sometimes been a barely passable number four starter so far in his career. Yeah, I, I was going to give it the ranking of, of picking up the call to the bullpen phone and looking at your roster and it's the 11th inning and you realize that Darren O'Day and... Um, uh, Zach Britton have already pitched, so you're trying to decide between, okay, do I go with um, Brian Mattis, TJ McFarlane, Brad Brock, or Preston Gilmay? Sort of a, 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 a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of a situation. <laughs> and I, I, I don't, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. I don't think any of those three names that I just read off, Kennedy, Burnett, De La Rosa, do anything that get me excited, especially because they're all coming over from the National League, especially because they've all like looked. And if you look at their American League team splits, they get shelled every time they pitch over here. I don't think A.J. Burnett has anything left in the tank. I think you're right about Kennedy. And I don't like a fly ball pitcher in Orioles Park at Camden Yards. It all seems like a bad idea. Now, so the question here then is, would you be willing to trade Bundy for Lee or to trade one of our one of our precious bodily fluids for <laughs> David Price. I mean, is that a move do you want to make? Do you want to trade Gosman and Harvey for David Price? Do you is it the time to do that? Is this the win now moment where we need to do it or do you want to stand pat, maybe bring in a bat and a relief pitcher and go from there? This week I'm feeling a lot of stand patness. I want to see where we come out of this West Coast trip, but my feeling right now is that there's no one uh, that the price is going to be too steep. We're not going to be able to outbid. as it were <laughs> too too steep to get to uh, outbid the other folks. And I don't think that Bundy and Harvey for uh, a year and a half of David Price is a good decision. Yeah, and I mean I think it's really interesting what you say about wanting to see what happens at the end of this West Coast swing mm. because this West Coast swing is by far the most difficult stretch of games that we have played so far this year, and coincidentally, it's going to be wrapping up 
right as we come up to the trade deadline. And it's going to be against a bunch of teams that there's very little chance we miss if we do make the playoffs. Absolutely. If the if the regular season ended today, three of the five teams that made the playoffs from the American League would come from the American League West. And frankly, and you know, I just mentioned in the in the opening that the the A's have been the bugaboo of the Orioles for the last couple of years, including I think the only real black mark on Jim Johnson during his amazing uh, 2012 season. They've they've been on our case for a bit, but the other two teams we own. I mean, the 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 Angels and the um Mariners. Mariners, I feel like we've been beaten up pretty good recently, and I think we have we have the psychological advantage on them. And I do have to say, the Gosman-Felix-Hernandez matchup is something I'm unbelievably excited about. That's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. Item number two on this week's Aaron Ledesma franchise report, the Yankees have traded Yangervis Salarte and Rafael DePaula to the San Diego Padres for Chase Headley and, in true Dr. Evil fashion, $1 million. This move seems to have been met with a collective duh-fuck from the league. Alan, what is your take? Uh, I'm in line with the league here, Sam. <laughs> uh, my take on this is it is the it is the baseball equivalent of Michelle Bachman and Alan Grayson both leaving the co- both leaving Congress <laughs> because Chase Headley has not particularly been good at baseball for the last couple of years. He hadn't been terrible, but he has not been someone who really lights your heart afire, despite, if I remember correctly, us clamoring for us to trade Bundy for him in 2012. Stop, 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 stop. He hadn't been very good, but he's been dependable in that every year at about this time, several bajillion words are spilled about who might trade for him. He is the most attractive trade chip, at least in terms of uh, uh, rumors, over the past two years. He is worth a lot of talk. And frankly, I'm a little bit sad to see him actually get moved because we've had all of this lovely time pontificating about what the Padres would need to get back to move Chase Headley. And I think it's been three solid years of us sort of saying, well, he's the only chip on the on the Padres and they're not going anywhere. So <laughs> they may as well try to move him. And now they finally have for uh, nothing all that exciting, frankly. And I, you wonder sort of, uh, much like the Grayson-Bachman combination, you haven't really lost anything if you're the Padres, but there's less to talk about. Well, it's really amazing. You know, I mean, you look at the Padres right now, and they're between GMs. And <laughs> it seems like an ideal time to loot the bejesus out of the Padres <laughs> because you're looking at a team that is threatening to have the lowest team batting average of the modern era. Yes. I believe their current team batting average is 216. And so you take a guy who is, and this is not exactly something to recommend your franchise, but the face of the franchise, your best all-around player, the guy who, as you said two and a half years ago, was somebody they were talking about trying to make into a cornerstone. And you've just traded him away for a pitching prospect who nobody says that much about and a guy who... Uh, had an unlikely run of success as a third baseman earlier this season. I mean, you basically have given him away. Yeah. And you've done nothing to address the core problem with your team. But he's only hitting two twenty nine. Well, exactly. He's, un- he's on base at under a three hundred rate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it, you know, it makes sense to get rid of Chase Headley, but yeah. you'd like to have somebody in the front office who does a better job of reminding 
another GM of his upside and how good he was in 2012 and get some kind of return that at least, you know, waves a flirtatious handkerchief <laughs> at your offensive problems. But you're right that, like, it is sort of like the, the you're... It is sort of like the Padres are in full loot mode, but when you burst into a treasury and there's nothing to pick up, like, how much looting can you do? <laughs> You've successfully stormed the gates, but then you're left, like, you know, with, like, one nice rug and a decent, you know, chest of drawers. <laughs> well, I would like to give this uh, one Hillary Clinton waiting a tremendously long time to drop out of the 2008 Democratic campaign for the presidency, despite the overwhelming obviousness of the fact that Barack Obama was going to be the nominee. Uh, and I would like to use that as a way of segueing into talking about the Yankees side of this, <laughs> okay. because um, the Yankees, I, what are you thinking? <laughs> Trade? You already have a $28 million a season third baseman. That's true. Named Alex Rodriguez, who, That's and this, true. this is the really sad thing about Chase Headley, steroid-addled publicly disgraced 38 <laughs> year old janky hipped Alex Rodriguez it's a good list is a better hitter than Chase Headley yeah I mean that's terrible <laughs> it's not that's, good that's terrible and I don't think defense at third base you know the 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 pro Yankee baseball media today has been spinning this as well you know Jeter's lost a step or two which is a generous way of putting it <laughs> at shortstop and they've just brought in Brandon McCarthy who's a ground ball pitcher so having a better defensive third baseman uh, on the left side might be able to make up the difference and it's like yeah that's how you're going to win the AL East two or three more steps at third base from Chase Headley and Brandon McCarthy taking <laughs> the place of Masahiro Tanaka and CeCe Sabathia that's and, not a winning strategy. And yet, and yet, Sam, this Yankees team will not die. <laughs> They've lost four-fifths of their starting rotation. They've lost everybody who could swing a bat for them. Or the the scary people have either been injured, useless, or uh, out-and-out um, designated for assignment. And yet, they... They keep hanging around. <laughs> well, and that, that, I guess, is where really my my ranking is coming from is because uh, I want to scream in their faces like, why won't you die? <laughs> uh, and As we record this now, they're somehow in the 10th inning 0-0 against Texas. Yeah. Well, and go I mean, away, Yankees. In in some ways, that is also somewhat telling because if you can't beat the Texas Rangers right now, <laughs> that's pretty sad that's Go pretty away! sad i think the texas rangers have won five of their last 30 games or something no one wants you here um but to me this is just such naked uh we are the yankees we are not allowed to acknowledge reality we have to put up this endless facade of victory and success and prosperity to the detriment of the core of the institution um and i think because if you look at it objectively with the Yankees, it's like, okay, smart guys, you brought in Chase Headley. So let's say you're not planning to re-sign him as a free agent. You still go into next year with A-Rod's contract on the books, with Brian McCann's contract on the books. Brian McCann's contract, already a bust. With Carlos Beltran's contract on the books, already a bust. With Teixeira's contract on the books, already a bust. 
with with Tanaka's contract on the books, which may or may not be uh, half of a season rehab. Yeah, at at best, with CC Sabathia maybe not able to pitch next year, already out for the rest of this season. What is it that you think bringing in Chase Headley is that going to be your difference maker this this season? It, it, I guess in service of the Derek Jeter retirement narrative, it's just so delusional. And if you're a Yankee fan, I don't understand. Maybe Yankee fans are furious about it, but to me, it's indicative of this larger thing that Yankee fans are perpetually delusional. And so the front office feels a need to not reality check them and say, just take a deep breath and we're going to build you an actually good team if you could have patience for two seconds, which nobody in New York will do. I don't, I, I don't think that that's totally fair. I think if you look at to Yankees fans, not the Yankees organization, I think the Yankees organization has this conception of Yankees fans that doesn't seem to be totally accurate. Because we see them already not going to games. They don't, they're not bought into this team. No one thinks that they're one chip away from actually competing for either a playoff spot or, more importantly for the Yankees, the World Series. Because the Yankees don't care if they make the playoffs. That's not what that organization has been built for. Right. And that's not what they're... They don't, they don't give a shit about been a first there, round. Been there, done that. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they could care less. And I think to the Yankees fans that I've heard credit... They actually don't there there's no wool being pulled over their eyes. They pretty clearly see that this is a uh, a bad decision and throwing good money after bad, and that even in a best case scenario that Headley is a a insufficient band-aid on a gaping wound. And I think from everything that I've read in the Twitter sphere after this trade and from real live conversations with real live Yankees fans, they sort of wish that the team would do more rebuilding than they seem to be willing to do. And finally this evening, item number three on the Aaron Ledesma franchise report, Tony Dungy was quoted as saying he wouldn't have taken Michael Sam in this year's NFL amateur draft because he's concerned that the massive coverage of Sam's sexual orientation would be a distraction for the St. Louis Rams. Sam, what are your thoughts on the coach's comments and the backlash they provoked? I am going to give this one BuzzFeed article. <laughs> and I say that because I think the Tony Dungy's comments, the way that they were reported in the Twitterverse and the way that they were reported in sort of the viral media to which we are subjected so much these days sure. are abhorrent. Um, and they represent some uh, taken at the face value um, with which we were presented they represent a lack of understanding of real progress and real heroism and real change now then there is what appears to be the reality of tony dungy's opinions (laughs) which your reality out of here he shared in a statement today where he said i was not referring to whether or not michael sam should have the right to play NFL football. He should have the right to play NFL football. I was not referring to whether or not the St. Louis Rams should have drafted him. They should have. And I was not referring to the fact that I wouldn't have wanted him on my team because I would. What I was referring to is the fact that the Oprah television network is going to be doing a reality show about him for the entire season. And yeah, that has the the potential to be a distraction for the St. Louis Rams. So if you take those words at face value, and he could just be spinning, who knows? 
But if you take those words at face value, what he was actually doing is making a fairly, fairly nuanced point about the cultural moment into which the Michael Sam um, narrative has stepped. And the fact that this isn't just a really talented football player drafted by a professional football team. It's a concept of change and progress being introduced into an extremely conservative uh, and very, very influential cultural space. And hmm. I think that the way that the story kind of caught fire and raged so brightly all day yesterday without anybody checking to see if the way Tony Dungy's comments were being reported were actually the way that he said them is indicative of a very serious problem that we have, which is like there was this article, um, there was this really interesting profile of Joe Biden in the most recent issue of The New Yorker, and uh, it makes a really wonderful, complex, nuanced point about who Joe Biden is, mm -hmm. um, which is this ultimately, I think, a in the, I think it's this is being fair to the article to say an ultimately um, very winsome, positive, good-hearted, sincere, um, but also awkward, uh, egotistical, um, somewhat delusional person who really wants the best things for his country. And the pull quotes that were picked up by like Huffington Post and. Uh, BuzzFeed and all these places that are just trying to get you to click and have feelings were <laughs> that he, you know, he said to Vladimir Putin, I don't think you have a soul. And that then becomes the talking point. Joe Biden right. doesn't think Vladimir Putin has a soul. And that's not the story of the article. That's not at all what the article was about. Right. But that is what we are driven to take up as the message of the article and have that become this thing that we all bat around in our, with our non-expert opinions until it flares out for a little while and the advertisers who advertise on our site get their impression quota for the month. Sure. And that's not good. That's very, very bad for discourse. So here's the tricky thing about Tony Dungy for me. Um, he's, the, he's the moral compass of the NFL right now. And has been for the last couple of years. And in every situation where the NFL has needed a moral compass, and there have been a ton of them recently, he sort of stepped into that space. And he's sort of the the patron saint, I think, of a good voice and a valuable voice in the NFL. And when people, players run amok or get on the wrong side of the law, he has been fantastic about working with them, saying the right things, that what they did was totally wrong, but trying to give them second chances trying to rehabilitate them, and being, I think, a very good and important space for um, the morals of, the, of, a, of a fundamentally immoral league. And I think that the problem with this coming out of his mouth right now is not that he may have meant it to, to be taken this way, but that it will fundamentally be used this way, which is to say it doesn't matter that he was trying to be nuanced anymore because it's been taken and it's taken on a life of its own. And now that life is something that I think is actually damaging because if Tony said it, well, then right. it's okay for us to say it. Right. And I think that there's sort of like, so in the same way that <clears throat> some Jewish hardliners won't take 
any sort of stance that Israel has ever done anything wrong in regards to Palestine, so too do I think um, Tony Dungy needs to be the person who is the most careful about these things. Because I think that what will often happen uh, if, if, you're in a, if you're in a space with a lot of political heat is if a person who is clearly identified as being on one side of an issue says anything at all that, that sort of modifies their stance or brings them toward the middle, the other side will pick it up and they will take it out of context and they will say things that uh, 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 justify their own actions. So if any Israeli politician ever says anything positive about the Palestinian people, Hamas will use it in every single one of their propaganda pieces, and they will show a, a, a story that is not accurate and not true. And my concern with Tony Dungy saying these particular things and the way that it's happened in the media, and I fundamentally agree with you. I think it was not his intent, and I think it's really not his fault necessarily that it's become this thing. But the reality is it's become this thing. And now it has become, I'm, I'm worried, a situation in which people will say, well, now we're, you know, we can talk about this now and we can say, well, I wouldn't have him on my team either. And Tony meant it to be an interesting discussion, but this guy means it because he's a homophobic, you right. know, right. afraid of Michael Sam and what he represents to a way of life. Yeah, absolutely. So the ranking that I want to give all of this is a fastball that slips away from the pitcher and accidentally beans the batter <laughs> in a bases loaded situation. <laughs> so the stakes are high. He was trying to go inside a little bit and push him back off the plate. And what ends up happening is an accidental base runner and, and an RBI because the other team ends up benefiting from this way more than the intent of the pitcher, but the results are still the results. And it doesn't mean that that pitcher... Let's say it's uh, let's say it's Tillman who throws the pitch. It doesn't mean that Tillman is suddenly a scrub, right? But you wish he had been a little bit more careful in that high pressure situation, in a place where he knew that the bases were loaded and that the game was tied and that we were in the seventh inning and all of these things that I think made it a very important moment for the baseball game. Uh, I think same can be said for those comments because he like it or not, has embraced this role as moral compass of all of the things that the National Football League holds dear. And what's brilliant about this, of course, Alan Smith, is that you've brought the whole conversation back to the pine tar debate. <laughs> Absolutely. The important thing here is grip. Absolutely. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, as always, for tuning in to the Aaron Ledesma Franchise Report. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with... Uh, the dreaded moment that we told you about in the introduction, the Baltimoreans Poetry Corner, coming your way in just a moment. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. Over here is Alan Smith. My name is Sam Dingman. And ladies and gentlemen, uh... We have not been down to an Orioles game at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this year. Sadly, we have not yet made it down there. But, and I'm sorry we didn't tell you guys about this, we did make it to Baltimore, and we thought we could go to an Orioles game, but let's, let's go to a poetry slam instead. Let's go to re the real beating heart of Baltimore, and really of the Orioles. Yeah, I, I think, I, and I don't think it... We need to explain the connection there to you. So I think it'll come clear 
as you hear this poem because Sam and I were fortunate enough to get our name picked out of the hat for the open mic night and we want to share with you the piece that we collectively performed for the the adoring crowd of four people uh, at the at this at this Baltimore poetry slam I believe in these Orioles but it's a belief that's been costly I've been losing weight. It's been crazy. People think I'm sick, like maybe I've got the bug, which isn't inaccurate. It's just this trade deadline shit that's got me stuck. It's not the bug, but it is a bug. A bug of doubt that wiggles into your brain, makes you compare every roster looking for a crystal among all these bad trades. And little by little we go insane and start talking like Jorge or AJ is the answer. They aren't. I wish there was a way to look into the future. A crystal ball that could tell me if Harvey or Bundy were real. Or if we should package them up with a JJ Hardy flip to a worthy suitor who would pay for potential. But as I sit here at my computer, I don't have a ruler. I don't have a measuring stick. We can't know for certain. And same time, we're told what we're not. We're being asked, what do you want to be? What sort of team? What sort of plan? Like, what would you look for in a good signing? Our attempts at self-medication don't seem to be worth it. Gonzo is turns into Kennedy. What's up with that shit? We're tied up and still being tied to some dude named Cliff, or we're told to admire AJ, who can't even hack it on the national side. So really, what's out there for us to acquire? Big bats for home runs? We've already got them. K's that come with them? We've already got them. Third men in rotations? We've already got them. A bullpen with big stones? Yeah, we've already got them which leaves us out seeking what we've always been seeking, an ace for our staff, which, while we don't already got him, will cost us all something more precious than all of it, hope and the belief that the Calvary's coming. But really, when did baseball turn into a mathematical statement? A team's not an equation filled with algebraic replacements. It's got a heart. It's got a soul. And despite all of these statements about improving ourselves near the deadline, basement shopping still feels like public debasement. Baltimore, we need to have patience. Because, and here's where it gets tricky, I don't want to be a team like the Yankees buying Chris Headley, where every trade deadline we fill in the same sickly holes that have rotted from within, where we go out and buy the best things on the market, and they last for a month before coming apart and falling into nothing. So stand pat, but don't stand still. So you're still standing when the seasons are turning to October. Let's go there. I believe in these Orioles.
All right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, well, you know, I, I think having listened to that, you will agree that our time was better spent at the Poetry Slam than it would have been in the left field upper reserve next at time Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Next time we're down there, though, we'll be sure to put out our, our, our performance slate on Twitter and the likes. So y'all can, can come see us in person. Yes. I, Alan, I also want to know what you think of uh, replacing the pun bell with the pun Congo drum. I feel like the Congo drum has a different role. Yeah, I feel like the bell's um, the bell's better. The bell the bell is good for puns. The Congo drum might be fantastic for deep thoughts. <laughs> so we'll never use it. <laughs> well, we are thankfully out of time uh, once again, <laughs> Baltimoreans. But um, I, I I do I do want to want to drop one piece of knowledge on you, Sam, which is that uh, yesterday when I was um, going to my refrigerator to try to, uh, to get a bowl of cereal. And I opened up the cereal box and I was pouring it into a bowl and this, uh, this, this little plastic toy that we used to get in the, in the bowls of cereal, you know, like the sure. little like, Cheerios toy thing. Yeah. This was a little car, fell out. Um, and inside the car, there was a rolled up note in the driver's seat, really small. And when I unrolled it, it was, uh, of course, as you probably guessed, a, uh, a message from intern Scotty. That was not going to be my first guess, actually. Really? Mm. I predicted it coming as soon as I saw that the car in question was a 1972 Jeep. Um, oh, you know, see, the jalopy. If, you, if, right. you'd, if you'd said that, then I would have known it was from intern Scotty. So we have another another episode of Where in the World is Intern Scott Diego? De- Scotty, big classic American car enthusiast. Absolutely. But if you hadn't inferred that from the previous of these segments, I, I don't know what to tell you. You're listening <laughs> to the wrong show. So Scotty is hanging out in Egypt um, and he really? writes to us. Yep. It writes to us saying um, he's actually on, interestingly enough, the Egypt border with Palestine. Uh, and He's doing a little bit of war tourism. I'm worried for him. I want him to keep his head down. That's ah, uh, yeah. So Scotty writes to us. Uh, about two important mistakes we've made over the last two episodes. Uh oh. Now, one of them is that um, Sam, you referred to uh, the construction of the Orioles baseball team, like chipping away at a piece of marble, mm. and you chip away with your chisel, and you chip away and chip away and chip away, and you're left with the Michelangelo. Indeed. Which is good. Except for what you meant to say was you're left with the Michelangelo's David. That's true. Because Michelangelo is, of course, the artist who created the sculpture <laughs> and not, in fact, the uh, the resulting chipping away experience. Uh, I meant, obviously, that Michelangelo had encased himself in ivory. <laughs> we were and freeing him. Another dude also named Michelangelo had... Michelangelo's Michelangelo. How? I mean, I don't know why that wasn't clear. I, for one, am really disappointed that they remade the Ninja Turtles movie. (laughs) Really bummed out. But the question is, more upset about that or the 1984 movie that you spoke about on a previous episode of the show? I haven't gotten to see it yet. Thankfully, it may have been halted before it it graced the silver screen. (laughs) Well, it remains to be seen. Don't worry, though, Baltimoreans. I was also uh, not without my flaws because in listing off during a show the different former Orioles pitchers who pitched in the All-Star game, I incorrectly suggested that Jake Arrieta had already pitched when, in fact, he spent the entire game 
on the bench. Where he belongs. Although the fact is four ex-Orioles pitchers were still in the All-Star game. <laughs> uh, none of whom are still wearing the black and orange. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you win some, you lose some. From hilarious to gruesome. And <laughs> there we go. <laughs> now, that, I mean, one of the other great poets of our generation. Absolutely. Besides Alan Smith. Absolutely. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we, we appreciate your tuning in as always to, to the program, but, uh, of course it wouldn't be the program that it is without the music that we use That's true. on the show on a weekly basis. That music of course is our theme music by Marshall York written and performed, uh, the song Birdland by the band Weather Report. And then of course there's also, uh, the song Working for Another Song by the band Town Hall. And uh, then there's also a little bit of Fish with the song Sample in a Jar from the album Hoist. And then here on the outro, it's Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. Sam. Yeah. What would you call yourself? Mm Mm-hmm. Nope. Sorry. (laughs) Sam. An expert podcast host. Next question. (laughs) What would you call Henry Arudia if he were... Watching the late great Elaine Stritch perform comedy with my lovely grandmother. <laughs> I I have no idea. Henry, what a hoot, Rudia! <laughs> <laughs> a question that prompts more questions. That's just what she always said about Elaine Stritch. She just loved her. <laughs> what a hoot. R.I.P. Missy Lane, R.I.P. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.